We're Lane and Sharis, two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. From alcoholic blackouts to phantom limbs, brain freezes, orgasms, and more, these bite-sized episodes cover all the human experiences that are fascinating to us. This is the mini Brain Blown Podcast. Hey, Lane. So last month, we talked about the neuroscience of smell. Mm-hmm. Now, are we going to continue down this path for this episode? I think because there was some question as to what was going on with COVID and why people were losing their sense of taste and why things tasted odd, we started with smell, right? Because smell is where we first noticed it in, in some of the symptomology. But I think the other half of that is definitely taste. So I think we have to expand on it. Nice. And do the other side of that coin since the two are very interconnected. <gasps> yeah. No, that makes so much sense. And great call out, yes, to last month's knowing that we dove into neuroscience of smell, one, because it's really cool. Yeah. Like, turned out to be way more interesting <laughs> than we expected. Right. But also. And we do it terribly. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. How much we suck at smelling. Right. That was so funny. But then also that tie into that there was an episode request that yes. someone was specifically curious about why COVID Mm-hmm. took away these things so mm-hmm. what yeah, happens when you lose your sense of smell is what they're asking for yeah totally absolutely so, which is a common question with all of that with all of what happened with covid yeah absolutely absolutely yeah let's talk about gustation i love how these simple things have such weird science words right uh, <laughs> and both of them are a cameo sensation because they're breaking down chemical responses love love it's like poetry wow. right So to talk about the neuroscience of taste, I think it's like anything else we've talked about, like pain or smell we have to talk about, or hearing, right? We have to talk about what happens to experience all this. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that same kind of direction. Love that. I actually loved that. It's not a visual because it's a podcast, but a sort of internal visual that we walked through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So play something on your tongue. We should have grabbed snacks for this episode. And there will be receptor cells waiting. Okay. If you touch your tongue right now, you can sort of feel that there are, it's a texture to it, right? Yeah, there are those bumps. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those bumps people think of are taste buds. They're actually not. They're called papilla. And your taste buds are actually on the walls around the papilla and inside the surrounding areas surrounding those bumps. Oh, so they're almost like the crevices or like the, mm-hmm. the cracks and crevices like around or inside. So sort of like the grout. Yeah. In oh, your yeah. tile. Yeah. That's that's where your taste buds are. Oh, wild. So in your taste buds, each one has receptor cells and they have between like 50 and 150 receptor cells in one taste bud. That's a and, lot. Right. And they are really geared specifically towards two tastes. And that's sweet or bitter. But we'll get more into all the specifics on that in just one second. So depending on the combination of the flavor of that chemical you're putting on your tongue, this starts a chain reaction. So when the thing you're tasting and its specific taste interacts with those receptor cells, it can then depolarize the cell. So in other words, it's actually changing the electrical charge of the cell. Wow. So it's just like doing, it's like, oh, this is different. We're going to do something different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, wild. Yeah. Okay. So you you taste something. So you taste something. It hits those receptor cells. That receptor cell potentially then depolarizes and sends a chain reaction up through your brain. Ooh. Okay. Interesting. 
So depolarization, that change in electrical charge, causes a neurotransmitter to be released. Our neurotransmitters, right? Our phone calls, our texts, our DMs. Yes. And it can cause reactions on the cells in your intestines that can stimulate the production of insulin. Oh, okay. Wow. So taste is triggering insulin. Yes. And you actually taste something twice. You taste it twice. You do. So eating sugars or glucose will cause your body to produce way more insulin than if you inject it because you taste it first on your tongue and second inside your intestines. And that notification of sugar means more insulin will be reacted, which you don't get if you inject it. Wow. So you're literally getting double. Mm -hmm. Holy smokes. Is that the same? Now we're focusing, maybe it's just from this, we're focusing on sweet. Is that the same for bitter food? So bitter is an interesting reaction. Uh, A 2011 study showed that it increases your appetite in the first 30 minutes, but after 30 minutes it will cause the reserves of this to like dwindle and prolongs the sense of fullness. So originally you want to eat more. After 30 minutes, it's like, "Mm, no, just kidding. And it takes you longer to want more. Whoa. Okay. I don't want to interrupt the brain direction that we're heading, but remind me to jump back to this because that makes me feel like you could plan. I don't want to get into like dietary things, but you could plan the food that you eat throughout the day to stay better satiated. Potentially wild okay Mm -hmm. which explains why a lot of people ingest coffee early in the morning and then forget to eat breakfast yes the bitterness Mm -hmm. wild so the stimulation of specific neurons focuses on the sensations that travel on the cranial nerves to what's called your solitary tract otherwise known as your nst nucleus of the solitary tract nst that's according to the Institute of Health and states it is a major sensory nucleus on the dorsal medulla that receives cardiovascular visceral respiratory, gustatory, oral tactical information. So heart information, blood information, organs, breath, taste, and touch. That's what your NST is doing. Wow, it's taking in everything. Yeah. Whoa. Except for smell. Whoa, great call out. Oh my gosh. Because smell is located so close to everything else. Yes. So this is located in our brainstem. So hand model of your brain, that's your, your wrist, right? Like palm wrist Mm -hmm. that's where your nst is located information is then sent from your nst to your thalamus so if we remember right hand model of the brain that is your thumb that's Mm -hmm. that buried in the center of your fist to the hand model of your brain Mm -hmm. and it's sent to the thalamus or limbic pathways to the gustatory neocortex which we have not talked about yet that's new right but we have talked a lot about what it's made out of which is your anterior insula we have talked about insula would you remind me again just out of curiosity what other episodes we talked about insula we started talking about insula in season one episode two in empathy in empathy yes because insula is activated when we feel a sense of disgust yes that's right so we've talked a lot about it because anytime we have some of that like adverse repulsed reaction, mm-hmm. that's your insula. Well, that's where your gustatory neocortex is, which makes sense because to survive, we need to make sure that we weren't putting absolutely disgusting, toxic things into our system. Yeah, that makes sense. So <gasps> when you have a reaction to food that's negative, that's your insula that's firing. Holy crap. Does that mean your insula... 
totally fires when you're younger. Maybe it's a developmental thing for bitter food because little kids, younger kids normally don't like bitter things. Like Mm -hmm. they don't like the taste of coffee. Like Mm -hmm. they don't like that sort of stuff. But as you get older. It changes. Yeah. That's a really curious piece that I wanted to know more when I was researching this is what causes us to change and move um, as somebody who used to have a major sweet tooth and now cannot eat anything sweet whatsoever but loves like coffee and dark chocolate and And like vinegary stuff mm -hmm, like pickles mm -hmm. like what makes you like those specific things yeah yeah that's yes I think that's some of the developmental wise because what's but what's interesting is in your tongue the receptor for bitter and the receptors for sweet are on top of each other like they're besties in the brain there's tons of space and there's a whole lot of space for neurons in between that. Whoa. So especially as the brain is developing, I'm sure there's that shifts so much and changes. That could go on there. Exactly. Yeah. So Yeah, all those pathways which may be building. Yeah. Right? Which may be why our palate needs to develop and change. Wild. Oh my gosh. But especially for little ones, it makes sense. Like, do not put that in your mouth. It's disgusting. I mean, they, we still have that even out without the insulin reaction, right? Yeah. So it makes sense on an evolutionary standpoint to try to to do a lot towards bitter. Yeah. Specifically, actually, with bitter is something we have more receptors of than I think almost anything else, probably because it's so focused on survival. How is bitter connected to survival? Poison, toxin, if oh. you eat something that's going to make you sick, it's it's often bitter. <laughs> things Makes that aren't perfect food, sense. right? <laughs> yeah, things that aren't sweet are probably not great. Yep. Wow. So yeah. evolutionary-wise, we're really geared towards sweet or bitter because sweet is simple. Mm. It is definitely food. It's definitely calories. Mm-hmm. And especially when we were running around in caves, you needed a high-caloric diet to survive. Mm-hmm. Because, again, humans, weaker, slower not as cool as most of the mammals for getting food right Right. so we just had to grab whatever we had and because we decided to stand upright our intestinal system changed so that we need to eat all the time Mm. and we can't find food as easily so yeah sweet fatty foods were huge to us and needed all of those positive benefits whereas we needed the bitter receptors to be like don't eat that it'll kill you gotcha gotcha so that's where we have all these specific receptor cells geared towards All of that is happening in the gustatory neocortex, which is made up of your anterior insula. Your insula is about being grossed out, among other things. And your upper column is involved in sort of what's happening to me and how do I make sense of it. Fair. Which tracks. Always. Yeah. Because a lot of food is what's happening to me and do I want to continue doing this or is this bad, right? Mm -hmm. According to Small, Van Heesen, and Green, studies suggest, quote, flavor perception begins to emerge in the insula and it has a significant value as to how we code odors and tastes specifically citing quote patients with insular lesions so lesions on their insula were found to display both gustatory and olfactory sensory deficits oh my gosh not as good difficult with smelling difficult with taste whoa wonder what's going on with covid whoa Hello, you should be on the COVID research team. Right. (laughs) Well, especially because we know from COVID, not only did people lose their sense of smell and or their sense of taste, and sometimes for long periods of time. Right. But also that things would change the way that they taste. Yeah, things seemed different. Yeah, Yeah. that something you liked all of a sudden tasted disgusting. That is shown, we've got research that says when you damage that part of your insula, that will happen. Wow. 
this is so cool. This topic is making me think of so many different things, too. So let me know if this just needs to be another mini episode. What is what do we think the effect is on the insula during pregnancy? Because that's where oh. you'll get really wild taste, like like cravings of weird things or like wanting to eat things that they used to absolutely hate or something like that. I think we need a neuroscience of pregnancy. <laughs> okay, we'll see if okay. there's room for this season. If not, we'll save it. So stay <laughs> yep. tuned. More to come in season three. The insula has specific value in regards to how we code things. So we have some agreements on why we code. This is what we got into in the neuroscience of smell is mm-hmm. smell and taste are going to be really fascinating because it's to look into the science of it teaches us how we actually code stuff, which is essentially key into how we remember and how we sort of sort through data. Yeah. In regards to that, we know that there are some flavors we agree on that are definitely happening in a certain way and some that aren't. And there's more research that needs to happen because as we mentioned in smell, there's a whole lot we actually didn't study on this because we got really excited about sight and then forgot about things. (laughs) So this is true for taste as well. So we have some agreements. Our agreements are sweet, bitter, and umami for certain. Ooh, okay. Sweet is a simple carbohydrate that binds to a receptor cell to set off a reaction. Bitter, as we mentioned, same receptor cell that's happening the exact same way through coupled proteins. Both of them basically are exactly the same. Okay. It's just which receptor cell. So that coupled protein might attach to a certain receptor cell and then that's bitter. Or this coupled protein might attach to a receptor cell and then that's sweet. Sure. Absolutely. Umami as a G-coupled receptors is also, as discussed, is not as restricted to the tongue, but also has receptors in your stomach, intestines, and your pancreas. Which Bija Trevali states, quote, aid to the digestive process by influencing appetite and regulating insulin production. They have also been found in the airways where they have an impact on respiration and even in sperm where they affect maturation. Wow. So umami's great. Yeah. Love. <laughs> Love. And so other flavors are up for debate as they could be a mixture of this or a different perception. And we're still trying to figure out exactly what we're coding and why, but we know those three are for certain. Salty, we know, doesn't have a salty receptor per se, the same way that the other three do, but it enters through sodium channels and then basically follows a very similar pathway. Gotcha. So it doesn't need those receptors, goes in a different way. Yeah. Sour operates very differently. According to Zucker, there's no specific place in your brain for sour. But oh. Zucker argues this is probably because it's also painful. He states, quote, when you put a drop of acid on your finger, it burns. You aren't getting a soury lemon taste. So your brain has a conflict on this particular taste. There's the taste, but there's also a possible reaction for sensory that your brain needs to pay attention to. So it's essentially conflicted. I'm guessing spice also would have the exact same thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Because your brain is like food and ow. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So it needs to sort of process it differently in a Mm -hmm. way that sweet does not have, right? You don't have ow with sweet. Yeah. Wild. Also important to note uh, is connected to a lot of what we talked about recently, which is pleasure. In the neuroscience of chemical dependency, we discussed that this will impact your ventral tegmental area and your nucleus acumens, right? Mm -hmm. Those are big for all things good. Additionally, Tyndall et al. states a role of the ventral palladium neurons in coding hedonics. Hedonics is essentially a title we gave things to say this is discussing pleasant or unpleasant sensations okay 
So hedonic is like, I really like that, I really don't like it. Sort of the pain pleasure that we talk about in terms of addiction, right? It We go through withdrawal, that's pain. We go through pleasure when we get something, that's your hedonic shift. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, the scale sort of mm-hmm. that balances. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Ventral palladium sits inside your basal ganglia. No big surprise, it's hanging out with motivation and rewards. Specifically, encoding hedonics. Do we find it pleasurable or not pleasurable? Do I want to do this again? Do I not want to do this again? This is all connected to, right, our mini episode on motivation or chemical dependency. They're all kind of coming together in this. Yes. This is an exciting area of research because we're really trying to further understand how this adonic shift can play into addiction when they impact your nucleus acumens and your ventral tegmental areas. Thus, that cause for motivation that could be causing that rewiring. Whoa. So we're doing a lot right now to figure out why the brain says, yes, I like it. Give me more of it up until the point where I don't forget to eat. I forget to sleep. I forget to do the things I need to do. Right. right? Well, how does that impact my motivation and reward to do other things? Yeah. And food and taste is a part of that because we know that's something you can become addicted to. It's mm-hmm. one of those things that can rewire your brain because a lot of pleasurable things can. Yes. So this is kind of bringing us to why does taste matter? So taste can curb or increase appetite, which could be helpful to know, as you brought up, for not wanting to get into people's dieting, but as an awareness of I'm eating something bitter, this means I may not have room for something later. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, kind of planning out <laughs> maybe sweets shouldn't be at the end of a meal. Right? Maybe they should be <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you're into dark chocolate, that should be at the end of your meal. That sounds great. Yeah, a, 30 a, great, a great bitterness. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. So maybe, maybe starting your meal with dark chocolate and then uh, 30 minutes into that meal, you'll be done and then you'll be full for longer. <laughs> Great hypothesis. I'm loving this. <laughs> so so we have that benefit, right? And understanding how that insulin reaction, the more we can understand that, the better we can help out with those particular diseases, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the more we know this is also connected to how we connect for pleasure, how we code for pleasure, lets us know a lot more about the brain. We are in an area of research where we're really trying to figure out what makes food pleasurable or unpleasurable. And knowing this could allow for more control over pleasure and not rewiring the brain in negative ways, as we discussed in the neuroscience of addiction. So anytime we're discussing something pleasurable, taste is one of them. This gives us more insight to help us honestly reduce chemical dependency. Holy crap. Right? Because it's all about how do we code and we need to code for taste. That's an easy one. Wow. Takeaway study the simple things yeah and learn the bigger things it's one of the reasons why when this was suggested i was like that sounds actually really cool because we sh- in this podcast it wouldn't be bad for us to have some building blocks as to what we do without question and taste and smell are something we do without question yeah and taste specifically like smell also tells us a lot more about memory There are memory triggers. Mm -hmm. You remember the taste of something and maybe where it was that you ate it or Mm -hmm. something like that. We mentioned already how smell, you can smell something immediately be transported back to a place or even be reminded of a person who smelled that way or something like that. Yes, because smell is so connected. It's two jumps. It's two jumps between smell and memory, which in your brain is nothing. So that's huge, right? But it's also a very fascinating part is... 
when we talk about memory as humans, we think, oh, memory, that's just like a part of your brain. Or that's just, we've got a grandma neuron that remembers grandma. None of it works that way. All Essentially, all your brain is doing all the time is remembering and coding. Mm. Remembering, coding, and learning are main factors to your brain being successful because that's literally how you're operating today. You're remembering how to speak, right? You mm. remembered the words for the English language. <laughs> to put on pants this morning. Yeah, you remembered. You remember pieces to literally function. This includes just smelling, eating. Those are base things that we have to do. Yeah. We have to remember, oh, that smells pleasant. I should go into that cave because that's going to have raspberries growing in it and guys where I don't grow in caves uh, <laughs> or, or remembering like those berries hmm they smell kind of weird I shouldn't eat those those are going to kill me mm-hmm. right so all of that is connected to, to smell and taste and our fundamental building blocks to helping us function but are then built up to how we can remember great symphonies or information about neuroscience or a variety of things right Mm -hmm. so the more we can understand how the brain remembers things the more we learn about what our brain is doing all of the time in addition to understanding more as according to Diwali this could have major impacts on treating a lot of conditions all the way from diabetes to infertility what how infertility because it affects sperm oh right yeah we mentioned that (gasps) yeah whoa right holy smokes so, All of this from taste. Right? It's just so cool. <laughs> so simple does so much. Yes. So I also had to play on this episode in terms of like what we can hypothesize as we discussed. We kind of have a good hypothesis. People who are studying COVID come at me. I would love to know if I'm wrong. Sounds great. But I would hypothesize that COVID damages your insula, which is kind of fascinating to potentially know. Yeah. We know it's causing some brain fog if your insula is really close to your basal ganglia in regards to motivation that tracks for brain fog mm-hmm. and if people are talking about covid makes them taste weird for months i would i would argue this is potentially a thing and how the coding could have gotten scrambled totally which is really insightful and potentially helpful yeah it's also a great reminder too that you don't taste in your tongue no you taste in your brain yeah and specifically you determine if you like it or not yes in your brain, which then leads us to sort of a, an interesting takeaway, which we didn't do as much for smell, but I think we can do a little bit for taste, which is if you want to like the taste of something, neuroplasticity. If you want to learn to like the taste of something, it is about essentially helping your brain code, right? Basal ganglia motivation. Hey, I like this thing. Mm-hmm. Hey, this thing has an appeal to it, right? And being able to to be present with that. And we know that we can do that. Although, we actually even talked about this in the neuroscience of racism. It is difficult to completely rewire for something we are adamantly against. If our insula fires too hard, mm-hmm. it's hard to get over that particular reaction. Mm. It's easier to go from like bad to neutral and neutral to good. So being aware of how big of a jump you're t- looking to make and how much time it may take to rewire your brain. Yeah. But yeah, be mindful with your food. Be present with the smell of it, with the taste of it, with the texture. Learn the piece of it that are appealing and you'll help rewire your brain not only to build on more of that thickening in your prefrontal cortex, which then decreases anxiety, which makes you calmer, but maybe you'll learn to like the taste of dark chocolate. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Lane and Sherris with music by James Austin. To learn more about this episode, head over to brainblownpodcast.com 
for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to info at brainblownpodcast.com or reach out via social media to connect.